All right, Mercy, my name's Eugene. I get to be a pastor. My favorite title for myself is uh, a sheepdog. That's what I am, a sheepdog for the great shepherd. It's an honor and a privilege to be here and to open the Bible. Hey, real quick, I just want to talk about a new arrangement uh, with our building situation. Um, Just want to give you two quick updates. Number one, uh, for the next four or five months, we will not be having the lobby over there because the school is remodeling it. Big, huge win and blessing for us. We're excited for Christmas season and all that to have a wonderful lobby. They're expanding it, but for the next four to five months, uh, we're going to have to do something like this. And we are right now uh, trying out best arrangement over the next few weeks. If you have a feedback, let us know how you think is best. And I will also say that the bathrooms are a long way away to my right, uh, but our team will be gracious to point everything out. Also, uh, we're really excited that at Mercy Church, uh, we have expanded our ministry from two classes to four classes. And so now we are live from zero to fourth grade. So if you would ever love to go, you can bring your children and I'll be wonderful. Hey, we are right now in a current sermon series in the book of Mark. And as you know, chapter one had all the highlights of Jesus's ministry. It read like a highlight reel. Chapter two is where we are at. And the larger context of chapter two is that Jesus is now being opposed by religious authorities. Last week, we read how the religious authorities did not like that Jesus forgave sinners. Today, we will find that they do not like that Jesus dined with sinners. And over these next weeks, we're going to develop a portrait of religious people. Not so that we could say, look at them, but to ask ourselves the question, where am I most like the Pharisee? Where am I most prone to be like the Pharisee? God, would you search me? Would you know my heart? Would you bring to the surface whatever is displeasing to your will? And let's, God, would you mortify that in my life? Kill it that I may honor you. That's the goal. So let me read chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I am so excited. Here's what the passage says. He went out. Again, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. I don't know, I'm like a broken record because the Bible is a broken record. Jesus dedicated himself to the ministry of the word, he's teaching always. And he, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Lord, we thank you 
that you are our great physician. Lord, we today stand as testimonies of your healing power in our lives to transform us, to make us more like you. Lord, and we thank you for all that you have done on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would bless this word, that it would bless us to bless you. In your name we pray, amen. Quick question. What is, we know what a Christian is. A Christian is a follower of Jesus. But here's a harder question. What does that mean to be a follower of Jesus? Here's even a way harder question and how do we even apply that to our lives and follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? The example that I think about, my mind goes to, is remember those good old days when, before GPS? Remember those good old days, like anybody grew up in the MapQuest era? Or your parents, or maybe you, printed out your directions ahead of time, and you took that piece of paper and you drove like that, some of you. But before even that, do you remember those how we got around, well, one way we got around was people just told us, like, hey, go there, you'll see a couple of trees, take a ride, and so forth. Never helped. Especially when people named those streets. You're like, I, I don't know, where's 132nd Avenue? What are you talking about? But before even that, the most dreaded words you could hear when somebody was trying to help you find out your way is they say these words, follow me. Right? And check this out. When they say, follow me, you have to drive like they, fall, they, like they drive. You can have a leader who likes to speed. They take the speed limit more like a speed suggestion. When they look at the yellow, yellow on the stoplight, that means slam on the gas, right? And they're just, that's the, how they drive. And guess what? You have to drive like that, don't you? Because you're following them. And usually those same people are switchers. They love to switch lanes every single moment. And you're driving behind them. You're like, come on, give me a break. Or you could, of course, have a slow poke. There's always those drivers who love to find the slowest lane. They love to drive behind a semi. And they have you following the semi. And here is a principle. You drive and you take on their driving habits. You put away your tendencies you put away what you like to do. You put away how you like to drive and you follow them, meaning you take on and become a driver just like they. I think that's an example of what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means we put away our tendencies to hate. Our tendencies to criticize our tendencies to exclude, our tendencies to judge, and we put on Jesus' habit of love. We put on the love of Jesus. To follow after Jesus means to love like he does. And there's a lot to that that we're going to explore today. That's the main thought today. Following Jesus is to take on his love and his way of loving sinners. Now let's look at this passage in some, and let's go over it in just as, you know, Scripture exists for 
uh, exposition, not imposition, right? Scripture is for us. It's, a, it's an export port, not an import port. We are to take something out of it, not put anything into it. And so let me just go through this passage, and it will draw out how it is that we are called to love. Here's what we find. We find the call of Levi. Another name for Levi is Matthew. Jesus is teaching, and he, as he is passing by, he sees Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. That is verses 13 and 14. Jesus calls somebody completely unworthy of him. Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. We have to understand what a tax collector is in that day. You're like, well, nobody likes tax collectors then. We don't like tax collectors today. Basically, it's the IRS, right? We don't like them. But no, 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 no. This is a tax collector of a different sort. This is the way uh, tax collectors worked in that time is they would have like a region where they would get to tax on behalf of Rome. They would be Jews who would steal from their country folk. The way they would steal and the way they would get rich is that they, they were greedy for money and they had to tax a certain amount from the people in their community for Rome. But here's the kick. They could tax a little more. And between what Rome required and what they sent Rome and they were, they, what they required from other people, that was their profit. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as people who were thieves and robbers. Most likely, any tax collector would leverage connections he developed over a lifetime with people in his community to know what everybody's up to. Most likely, there would be intelligence going on about who's making what and what is being brought in and what is being farmed. And this tax collector would take always a sliver from the top. They were hated and despised. I love that Jesus is walking by. I don't know what Matthew must be thinking right now, but no doubt about it, Matthew has heard the rumors about Jesus. He knows a couple of things that people have said. Here is a person who's saying he is God. Here's a person who's teaching with authority. Here's a person who, in the synagogue, a demoniac cried out, what do you have to do with us, holy one of God? Here is a savior, certainly a prophet. And I can't imagine what Matthew's thinking or Levi is thinking in this moment as Jesus is passing by. I can't imagine the guilt he must have that he sits on the wealth of hardworking people. Except we find that Jesus was looking at him. I don't think Matthew or, or Levi would ever come up to Jesus and try to follow him. He would be too unworthy of that. Except that Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And Matthew, I think, is undone by that invitation. How gracious. I am so unworthy. I am a sinner. I'm a thief. I, I have made my wealth on the backs and exploited the people in my community, your people, God. And here is a prophet, at least a prophet for now, who's telling me, follow me. I love that image. 
That's still the Jesus who calls similarly today us. It is a Jesus who also makes and beckons us to follow him. And check this out what happens. In verse 15, when Matthew leaves everything behind, leaves the tax booth, starts to follow Jesus, here's what happens. He has a party and a dinner where he invites all the other tax collectors and sinners. Because there's a principle here. Called people call people. Called people call people. Having been called by Jesus, having been astounded by the good news presented to him, he is stunned by the invitation. He can't help but turn around to all of his co-workers, all his colleagues, all the other thieves and say, come with me tonight. We're going to have a party. You're going to meet this Jesus. Called people call people. That's how evangelism works today. Good news. You know, what do you do with good news? You share it. We know this. <laughs> it's called social media. Anytime you have good news in your life happening, you're posting about it. Think about this. I was thinking about my life. How excited I get by some new product, a new app, a new service, a new restaurant, a new cake. I become immediately a sharer and a messenger of good news. Let's never forget that the gospel, you know, people, when they think of evangelism, I think of it as being some sort of colonialism, this thing you've got to do. It's sharing good news. People, it's good news. And called people call people. And so Matthew, the Levi, sets up a dinner at his house. Now watch this. In verse 16, what happens? The scribes of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners you have to imagine for a moment and I'm going to do this exercise but do not judge me imagine whatever however you see the world however you have the hierarchy of morals I don't know probably every one of us thinks there's certain people who are worse than others, a little worse than others. Imagine those people. That's the class of people we're dealing with. Now imagine that you are on Instagram and you swipe and you see that Jesus is hanging out with those people. That's what's going on here. Jesus is associating himself with people you don't associate. There are tax collectors and sinners. To go a little further, we must understand what a meal meant at this time. For us, a meal is like a business meeting or more than often than not, we just grab to go. Meals do not mean for us nearly as much as they had meant back then. A meal was a way of enforcing who's in and who's out who's part of the community and who's not part of the community. A meal was a declaration about who you were and who the people around you were and what your association was. To have a meal was to instantly say, I want to have a relationship with you. The way you reconciled with warring enemy parties back then is you invited them to a meal. And here Jesus is having a meal 
were the tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees cannot stand that. To have a meal was an invitation for friendship and peace. And Jesus here is demonstrating his friendship, his pursuit of the outcast, the outsider, and for that matter, anybody. And I'll notice how this story ends. And when Jesus heard it, he says, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the secret ingredient to healing. Here's the secret ingredient to wellness. Here's the secret ingredient to wholeness. In order for you to be touched by the great physician, you must recognize your great need. I love what this says. This says that every tax collector there and every sinner was restored because the great physician was there. That's his aim. Jesus cannot help you when you are not in need of him. Just like you will never go to a doctor unless you recognize you have an issue. We will never go to our Savior unless we recognize our need for a Savior. The question is not, are you part of the righteous or the sinners? The question is, do you see yourself as one who has a need? Now here's what I would love to do. I would like to make two points out of this story. Point number two is that we ought to be like Jesus and love sinners like Jesus loved. But that's not everything there is. (laughs) Before we can say point number two, we must establish point number one, that you and I were those tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus ate with us. Jesus invited us to follow him. Jesus pursued us and established a relationship with us. Before we can, you know, most people, most Christians, and me included, read the story and it's like, see, everyone, Jesus ate with sinners. Let's, we, being Jesus, eat with sinners. I don't think it should read like that. Before we can say that, we need to establish that we are the sinners, We are the tax collectors, and Jesus pursues us. And when he has pursued us and restored us, we are now people who are called, calling others to Jesus. Please do not read this story as the righteous. No, we are the ones who are in need. We are the ones who are in need. I like to think about how much We are all a product of God's grace. You you know you're always needy. Do you know that you always need Jesus' blessing? Do you know that you never for a moment are self-sustained in your walk with God? Do you know that you you were a sinner, made a saint, but now you still sin? And if it weren't for the grace of God, you would remain a sinner, outcast, pulled out of the family of God. That would be still the truth. Oh, this is for us. You know, we often think about grace as something that just helps us when we stumble. And grace comes from heaven to clean up our mess. 
No, I have found that grace goes also ahead of us, securing all of our victories. Every good gift is from above. But for the grace of God, we are still dead in our sins. Never forget, you know, I grew up in a generation, the praise God generation, where for everything you could ever say, compliment, give, you had to say praise God. Somewhere along the way, we got really, really wise. We got smart. We're like, well, I sung. I'm the one who preached. I'm the one who raised my children. Well, maybe it's, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that compliment. Oh, mercy. Is there anything glorious about your marriage? Praise God. Is there anything excellent about your business? Praise God. Is there anything noble in your character? Praise God. We are a product of God's grace. It's always been the case. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we are with those tax collectors. We were there and Jesus called us out of kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Can we just say amen to that? Would we always credit grace and give grace, credit grace and give grace? I love Apostle Paul. Oh, this is so, so beautiful. I love his growth in humility. Let me show you something behind me on the screen. This is Paul writing different, from different letters, expressing where he's at on the chain of Christians. Let me show you in AD 54 what Paul writes. He says this, for I am the least of apostles, unworthy to, unworthy, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Notice how he says, I am the least of the apostles. Look, that's high praise. <laughs> to say like I'm the least of the apostles is to say, you know, I'm out of 13 billionaires. I'm the least. I'm number 13. All right, Paul, that's awesome. You're an apostle. What a privilege and honor. Some years later, he will write a second letter to Ephesians. And he will say this, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints. Oh, that's a little more humble. Not that that wasn't. I'm just saying there's a growth of humility in Paul. And to say that I'm the least of all the saints is like saying I'm poor, but I'm born in America. It's still far richer than any other country. And then Paul finishes off the last letter he writes to Timothy in AD 62 to 64. And he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he just, I think he cries out, and I am the worst of them. As a Christian, we grow in humility, not decrease. We grow in our need of grace, not decrease in our need of grace. We are those people. We're the tax collectors and sinners. And by the grace of God today, we are raised into the kingdom of light. Is that established? Well established? That point? Yes. Never forget the kind of product of grace you are. And every goodness and every good thing. And I'm just thinking right now about all of you that I've gotten to know. And how amazing you are. And the goodness in your life. And the things that you have won and overcome. And we can only say praise be to God. Point number two. Let's talk about loving like Jesus loved. 
Here's the truth. Jesus is outrageous in his love. He's an outrageous Jesus. He loves in a way that nobody else loves. Here's an equal truth. If our Savior and Jesus is outrageous in the way he loves, we are outrageous followers. To follow Jesus means that we follow him with the same kind of love. That's what it means. Remember that driving example? That's Jesus' speed. <laughs> That's what Jesus does. That's who he goes to love. That's he who he pursues. And that means as followers of Jesus, that's exactly what we do. Yes, we have a tendency. Yes, we have a bias. Yes, we could want, we want to uh, close up and just hang with our people. No, Jesus goes and to follow Jesus is to love as, and be as outrageous in his love as he is. So I want to talk to you about the word love. What does it mean to love sinners? Knowing that we were once, knowing that we would be there, dead in our trespasses, we're in for grace of God. What does it mean to love sinners, loving the sinner? I have found it to be the case that most Christians are afraid of this word. In our politicized, fragmented online forum wars going on, we don't really like this word love. We're suspicious of this word. And I'll tell you why. Because I think, and this is my opinion, we have adopted world's definition of love. The world has performed linguistic theft. They redefine what love is, and we came along and said, yep, that's what love is, so I don't want to do anything with love. What does love mean today? What does it mean to love a sinner? What does it mean to love the world? I'll tell you what we often think it means. It means these things. Tolerance. Loving sin. Accepting whatever. Morals acquiescing to sin and we can keep on going and listen this is what the definition for love for many of us is and we have become super cautious like uh, God loves sinners uh, I'm supposed to love sinners ah uh, does that mean compromise does that mean a change up of values and we have been steeped for so long in this that we have abandoned a lot of the love commandments wholesale <laughs> You know the great commandment? Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your will. And likewise, the second great commandment is to love your neighbor. We are people who are called to love. We are people who are, ought to be defined by love. I want to be in church with radical love for the world. And we are allergic to this. We're afraid in this polarized world that we live in to even speak of this. But Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. And I want to be people who love our neighbor. And do you know who your neighbor is? Jesus told a story of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, you know, he's walking and he sees somebody in need. And the story is, that's your neighbor. 
The next person you meet in need is the neighbor you're called to love. That's your neighbor. So what does it mean to love? What if we didn't buy this definition? What if we let scripture speak and look at Jesus' love and say, that's what it means to love. And how about this? Let's be a people of outrageous love. I'm excited. Let me give you four things that we can gather from scripture as to what this love entails. To love our neighbor, to love anybody, first and foremost, is to see every human being as an image of God and treat them with greatest dignity. We like to say here at Mercy, nobody's a nobody. Nobody's a nobody. Did you know, I mean, think about this. Every human being alive has in them an image of God. How glorious is that? How remarkable is that? Let never stop being sensitive to the wonder of God creating us to be images, the crown of his creation, to have the image of God. Nobody's a nobody. There are nobody. There are no people who are nobodies. Every single human being has the image of God in them. An eight weeks baby in the womb of a mother is an image of God. A happy, smiley person with Down syndrome is an image of God. A person with a different skin color from yours is an image of God. A homeless person who's made regretful decisions is an image of God. A person who has Alzheimer's and to our society is useless is an image of God. A person who thinks differently from you is an image of God. A person who votes differently from you is an image of God. A person who sins differently from you, a person whose sins are different from yours is an image of God. The person whose sexual lifestyle is at odds with the teaching of Scripture is an image of God. A greedy, flaunting person who exploits others is an image of God. A mom who's on her way to her third abortion is also an image of God. We ought to be a people who never forget that. This is our inheritance. It's not from the Declaration of Independence. This is from our scripture. We are a people of this word. This means that this is how we see every human being as an image of God. And that is weighty. That is so important. And this is why Christians all over the world are engaged in philanthropy. If you go to Africa, look, you won't find a lot of atheists helping out. And there's good reasons for that. It's like, what, what is there to exist for, you know? Like, might as well make your kingdom here on earth, live, maximize your comfort. You won't see a lot of Hindus. You will see a lot of Christians. Because when everyone has that dignity, then a boy ought to read and know how to write and a girl know how to write and prison rape is wrong and so forth. Christians start to care about the needs because it's degrading to a human. I was reading an article in the New York Times, 
And this is what the author writes. He says this. He says, but in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. And he's talking about like how evangelicals get a bad rep. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities, mostly church-related, more important, go to the front lines at home or abroad, in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric, fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians. Then he gives a bone to the Catholics who truly live their faith. Do you know why? Because we look at a people with dignity. And every human being has that dignity. Do you know how James chapter 3 verse 9 talks about why we shouldn't gossip and curse others? He says these words, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is saying, you know why you should control your tongue and how you curse? It's because they are made in the image of God. I want to call you, Mercy Church, to just glorious respect and kindness and good, kind treatment of every image bearer. That's where we start. But that's not all there is to love. If first love loves and sees the image of God, the dignity of every human being, then secondly, we go further and deeper and get into a spiritual mode, is that we see and have a heart broken by brokenness and human separateness from God. To love a sinner means that we see and are broken by their brokenness. And are broken by their separateness or separatedness from God. Is your heart broken? Let me ask this to myself. Is my heart broken? Or is my heart indifferent? Is my heart broken by other people's being caught in the snares of the enemy? Or is my heart callous and insensitive? You know, Mercy, if you're not careful, and if I'm not careful, my heart will not care about others. I have found this to be true time and time again, that my heart, the tendency of my heart, is to kind of just worry about myself, my life, and not be broken by the brokenness around us. Stop, but Jesus, he's broken by it. He's coming after the hurting. He's coming after those who are outsiders. Number three, love. To love. What does it mean to love a sinner? Is to have a dream and a desire for all to be redeemed, made new, born again, and become part of the family of God. Uh, Jesus, he's coming after the tax collectors because he wants them in. And I love that word dream because it paints for us a possibility that we often forget exists with the power of God. We ought to have hope, hope that God can take anybody and turn them into his child, 
God can change anybody. God can bless anybody. God can save anybody. And we are too pessimistic sometimes. We see society's ill and we think, man, there's no way anybody can help that person. Not true. We are called to be the ones who hope for that. I was reading a cool story about Bill Atkinson. He's an engineer from Apple from back in the day in the 80s. And I just want to show you the power when you believe things are possible. Bill Atkinson was tasked with creating code for the computer where windows could overlap one another on a computer. You know this? You got one window open on your desktop, and you could put another window on top of it. Some of you have like hundreds of them. <laughs> you have to clean up at some point, right? Because they slow our computers down. But that for us, is just natural stuff. Like, wow, that, that always existed, didn't it? But no, there was a code that somebody wrote for that. But the most interesting thing about Bill Atkinson is when he decided to make that, he believed it was possible. And the reason he believed it was possible is because a couple months before, he went to Xerox factory, which was the IT leader at that time, and he had a tour, and he remembered looking at a computer screen as he was getting a tour and saw windows overlapping other windows. So he went to work to create code for this. He started to make this code so that he could have windows overlap windows, and he succeeded. What he didn't know was Xerox didn't know how to do that. He saw something that wasn't there. He falsely remembered seeing that, but he never saw that. Nobody knew how to do that at that time, but he saw something. And I want to see, talk about, do you see the power of the gospel to change anyone? Oh, I know about pessimism. Oh, I know about being negative. Oh, I know about posting on social media. That's easy, but do you have the, power, the, the ability to see? Because when we have that ability, we have that joy, we have that desire to see others saved. We begin to do something. We see Jesus broken, coming for the sinner. We see here a desire to restore these sinners. And here's number four. Most important probably is that there is a move towards the sinner. One through three or two and three can remain theory for us and not practice. Two and three can exist and be about theory and how, yes, God loves every sinner, but never we, and we could, there could be a way where we never actually make the step towards the sinner. Oh, number four, I wanna to talk to you about making a move, mercy. If this is true, if we're gonna be a people who love, who love, then here is the practical application of this. Make a move towards building a relationship with those who don't know Jesus. Here we find hospitality being showcased. I think, can think of no better way in today's day and age how we as missionaries living as sent to this dying world to win others for Christ, I can think of no better method than through the time-tested method of radical hospitality. Do you know that, and we could get the keys up here, but do you know the hospitality was a Christian practice? Practice through the centuries. 
Jesus, in one author, commented how Jesus in the Gospel of Luke <laughs> is either coming from a meal, is at a meal, or leaving a meal. <laughs> Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, is always engaged in hospitality. He's either coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal. Oh, I want to talk to you about this one practical point. For could you possibly learn to do this in your life? Open up your doors. The radical nuance of Christian hospitality as opposed to other kinds of hospitality is that Christians practice hospitality not for the sake of reciprocity. Christians are actually to practice reciprocity, uh, hospitality for people who cannot pay you back. In Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you to return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you see how Christian hospitality, yes, of course, this means have your friends and family. But it also means that our hospitality looks downward to those who cannot repay us. Christian hospitality has been practiced through the centuries. Do you know where we get hospitals from? Hospitality. Christians used to practice and give up their homes for the hurting, the blind, the lame. And out of this was birthed the hospital. Do you know the word hotel and hostel? It comes from Christian practice of hospitality. We as Christians with 2,000 years of history have always been engaged in radical hospitality. You know why? Because it builds relationships. It's relationships that win. It's the relationships that open up people's hearts. And I think this is what Jesus demonstrates for us. I was reading a book, a beautiful book. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And Rosaria Butterfield has a couple of quotes I want to read for you about practicing hospitality. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. They take biblical theology seriously, as well as Christian creeds and confessions and traditions. Let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community, gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family because that is the point. Building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Radical, radically ordinary and daily hospitality is the basic building block for vital Christian living. Start anywhere, but do start. I want to invite you to this. I want to invite you to make whatever step you can make to open up your homes, open up your hearts for the non-believer, just as Jesus demonstrated. And that's how we love them. Now, some of you, maybe that's too far for you. You know, Christian hospitality is something that's definitely 
something we got to do uh, as pastors. It's one of the requirements of pastors. I've never heard of a pastor being removed for not inviting people, <laughs> for not practicing hospitality, but it's that important. Um, but maybe you're not there yet. So let me just ask you this question. But what can you do to move towards a relationship with people you consider sinners and tax collectors? What can you do to make a move towards them? Do it. Do it for the glory of God. Love them and win them for Jesus. Move towards the sinner so that you can have the opportunity to share the gospel. So I have a question for you as we end this sermon. Mercy Church, are you going to be a disciple of Jesus? Or are you going to be a disciple of a Pharisee? Are we, begin, are we going to be a church who are known for our Christ-like love? Or are we going to be a church known for our pharisaical, critical, judgmental, exclusive community? I'm putting down this sermon by the Spirit of God that we be a church that's going to put our roots deep and down in our cities. We are all missionaries. And we're going to learn to be people of outrageous love because Jesus is an outrageous Jesus who loves. And we're going to love people with greatest dignity. We're going to love people seeing their brokenness and being broken and weeping and crying and having a soft heart. We're going to love people by holding out hope that they can meet Jesus and be transformed. We're going to love Jesus, uh, the sinner by making a move towards them, building relationships and inroads. I want to wrap up with this. For some of us here, we ought to praise God that He invited us to the table, being sinners, dead in our trespasses, and yet He loved us. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Some of you here today have never put your trust in Jesus you've never confessed your sins you've never prayed to him saying Jesus you can save me you, you, you can do for me what you did for them I want that Jesus I want you I want to invite you to do that in this prayer but for all of us as your pastor I want to pray that we would become a people of love we would not be allergic to this word we would not be afraid of this word. We would use it all the time. God loves the sinner. Mercy Church loves the sinner. We love the sinner for we were that once. And we would, would be that weren't it for the grace of God. Would you bow your heads with me? Oh, Jesus. As you work on our hearts right now. God, I want to thank you for saving us. I thank you for calling us from our sin. Lord, I want to ask that you would save anyone here who does not know you, has not put their trust in you. But God, I'm also praying for our hearts, for our love. God, we are often so afraid of that word. 
We have let the world redefine it for us and we've cast out your commandments. But God, we are a people of love. Make us so. God, soften our hearts. God, may our hearts break by the brokenness around us. God, help us be missionaries. Help us live as a people sent. Oh God, we're just a year and a half old as a church, but may there be testimonies on testimonies of what, how you have called others. And God, we are the ones you're going to work through, so work through us. Oh, we honor you, we bless your name, and we thank you, Jesus. Amen.